Welcome to the Adventures in Producing podcast. My name is Wendy Mitchell. I'm a UK-based film journalist and film festival consultant. And I started these talks with amazing producers because I don't think independent film and TV producers get enough attention for all their work. I think a lot of people don't understand what a producer actually does. So in each episode, I talk to one producer about their career and some lessons learned. I hope you enjoy. I'm delighted to be here with one of my favorite producers and friend. It is Marie-Therese Gerges. I hope I pronounced the name almost correctly. She is a New York-based film producer who has worked in both fiction and documentary. She got her start in distribution, so she's going to tell us more about that before becoming an independent producer. She is currently head of production at Play Action Films, and some of the recent hits she's had include Summer of Soul, Questlove's amazing film that just was a hit at Sundance. So Marie-Therese, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited that we can do this across an ocean. Yes, fun. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you even got started in producing? Because I knew I know you were working in distribution more at Windstar, which later became Wellspring. So sure. how did you then move from there to producing? Sure. So uh, I think like a lot of people, a lot of young people, you know, who start out thinking they want to work in film. I had no idea what that meant. Uh, you know, I hadn't hadn't been exposed to that many professionals when I was in you know in school and college, and um, you know I didn't know. I just knew I wanted to work in film, and I, I had no idea kind of what what track in film. So I, the truth is, I actually just kind of took the first job that I got, which was at a distribution company, and it wasn't it wasn't that I you know I even knew really what distribution was but I was lucky to get a job as initially as the assistant to the owner and head of a really good art house, foreign, mostly foreign language, some independent film distribution company called Fox Lorber, um, Richard, with Richard Lorber, I was working for him. And, uh, and then I kind of worked my way up at that company and sort of by the last couple of years, I was running the company with a couple of other people. And, um, you know, I loved working in distribution. I loved learning about what it takes to kind of get a film out into the world. Um, you know, I loved going to film festivals. I, you know, I met a lot of amazing people, including you. That's how, that's how we met. Um, but I think that, you know, the longer that I was doing it, the more I realized, uh, which is really the only way of realizing what you like and what you're good at is by just, I think, doing things, right? Like trying things. I realized that what I liked the most and what I thought I was best at was really kind of the relationships with the filmmakers, communicating with the filmmakers, um, you know, sort of being collaborative with them, sort of standing up for them, but kind of balancing that like that sort of art commerce um, equation, which is always kind of tricky, at least especially in the United States. And um, so the company closed, it was shut down and it was very, it was very sad, but you know, as you know, too, when those things happen, it's, they can also be opportunities because, you know, you're just kind of forced to change. Like, you, you know, you're not, it's not dependent on you sort of have taking the initiative. Um, and so I was kind of at a crossroads and I, I realized I could continue, you know, I, I had, I had opportunities to continue working in distribution. I could, you know, have worked at a bigger company, for example, or I could have, you know, worked at another company of the same size and like run a company. Um, but my heart wasn't really into it. And around, around that time, 
uh, a filmmaker named Ira Sachs, who's an American filmmaker who I was friendly with. And I had been sort of helping behind the scenes, like advising him and, uh, you know, kind of giving me advice on, on his, uh, he, he had a film called Married Life that was, I believe, um, he was finishing it and he was sort of, you know, preparing kind of like the festival strategy and the, I think Sony Classics had bought it, but, you know, he had a lot of questions and I was helping him behind the scenes. And then one day he asked me if I would become his manager. And, you know, I didn't really even understand exactly what that meant. And I knew that he had a manager, uh, like a very, you know, a very well-respected kind of prominent manager, but he felt that, you know, I had a certain set of skills and experience and understood maybe his filmmaking in a way that, you know, would probably make me like a very good advocate for him and, but that I had to be in this official capacity to do it, that I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't just be like saying, this is what you should say, this is what you should do. But if I could actually be on the calls and be on the, so he asked me a few times, I, I think like a lot of people, especially women, when um, presented with things that we don't think we know how to do, you know, my first and second response was like, I can't do that. You know, I've never been a manager. I don't know what that is. And, and you know, but he kept on sort of pushing and I did it. I finally said yes. And then that very quickly, because I was working with him and I started working with a few other um, independent filmmakers, it really very quickly evolved into me kind of helping produce their work. So, um, you know, I produced his film and then I produced another film and it kind of, I just learned sort of on the job and realized pretty quickly that I, you know, producing I think was a, a better fit for me as, you know, in terms of my skills and, and also just in terms of what I really like to do. So it, you know, it happened, I, I can't say there was a ton of like intention but it was the it definitely was the right fit, and then I decided to sort of stay on that track once I once I changed over. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It does seem like the right fit for you and what you sort of love the bits and pieces you could draw on what you loved about working in distribution and or, or what you liked having a relationship as a manager. So your first two fiction productions were Julia Loptev's The Lonely's Planet, and as you mentioned, Iris Sachs. Uh, his film Keep the Lights On, just an amazing uh, film, very different films. Um, sort of which came first and how did you, did you learn on the job on those? Yeah, I completely learned on the job. I mean, I knew nothing about producing, even down to, you know, I had never seen, um, you know, I'd never seen a director's agreement before. I'd never seen a production agreement. I mean, I'd never seen a financing agreement. Uh, so, you know, I was definitely asking friends, um, like, do you have, can I see what that looks like? Or can you tell me what to do? Uh, which came first? It's a good question. They, they kind of happened around the same time. I, you know, I think that um, it was pretty quickly that I was working on both at the same time. So I, I can't, I can't remember exactly sort of which came first. Um, maybe Iris, maybe keep the lights on a little bit earlier. Um, you know, and in both cases, I was lucky. So on Keep the Lights On, I, I worked, I produced the film with um, a young, at the time, very young producer who's now, you know, still young, but definitely has a lot more films under his belt, named Lucas Joaquin. Mm. Um, and on uh, Julia's film, The Loneliest Planet, I worked with uh, uh, Jay Von Hoy, Jay Von Hoy, Van Hoy, sorry, and Lars Knudsen. Oh yes, and, love those guys. Yeah, and so I think in both cases, um, you know, I definitely learned from the people I worked with. And then I had sort of skills. I, you know, we had very complementary skills, I think. So, you know, on neither film was I the sort of main like physical production producer, 
because I didn't have the background. And in both cases, the people I was working with had more of that background. Um, whereas I maybe had more of the sort of like the business background, the kind of strategic background, and then maybe the filmmaker, a little bit of the creative producing at the time. I mean, they've all, you know, gone on to make a lot of other films. So I learned from them. I learned from, you know, the filmmakers I learned, but the thing that's interesting that I think, um, I'm sorry, I'm backtracking a little bit, but I think back to what I said, you know, in the last answer about how, uh, you know, when I, when Ira first asked me to be his manager and I was like, I can't do that. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And that wasn't the first time I had done that about sort of other kind of career possibilities that might've been like outside of the box I was in. You know, I think what I've learned from making that transition to producing, which, you know, it wasn't easy. And, and I definitely had a lot to learn is that, you know, you can do so much more than you think you can. Like if you think of, you know, what you can do in the future only based on what you've done in the past, you're limiting yourself so much because the truth is that, you know, you learn so much along the way, kind of no matter what you're doing, you know, and all of that actually is useful and all of it. And sometimes it actually may, will make you better. Like, I think I'm a, I'm a better producer probably than, I'm not saying I'm better than everyone, but you know, I think I'm good and I'm better at what I do because I actually worked in distribution. I didn't start in production for the first, you know, however many years of my career. And so while you might have a, like, there might be more of a learning curve, you know, you, you'll learn. I mean, I think, you know, like, especially film work, most of it is very much like on the job work. I mean, you're, you're not studying for the most part, how to do a lot of what you know, we do. What I'm doing. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I was going to ask, you know, how do you think, because I think it's such an asset that you worked in distribution and acquisitions, and, you know, how do you think that benefits you today, even having that inside knowledge of what it's actually like to distribute a film, I think must be so valuable as a producer. Yeah, I, I really have come to realize that it is. I think it it benefits and, you know, it, it helps me and I think it helps the filmmakers I work with, the films I work on in a few ways. I mean, first of all, there's just a very practical, uh, practical thing, which is that I know a lot of distributors. So, you know, there have been films I've worked on that I've sold myself, you know, or I've been extremely involved with the sale of the film. And I know how to position the films you know, for distributors because I was one, you know, so I, I kind of know like what are, what a distributors like hate hearing from sales agents or what are they, you know, I think, and I think people trust me and know that I'm, I'm not a liar and I'm not a bullshit artist. And, you know, cause I'm not a professional salesperson, not that that's what that means to be a professional salesperson, but you know, I'm not, that's not what I do every day. So if I'm sort of talking about something it's, and I'm, I think people know I'm pretty honest. So I think they're practical. And I also, you know, I know distributors, I know festival um, programmers. I know, you know, I, I know journalists now, not, you know, of course there are producers that also know them, but I think that I maybe had it a little bit easier, you know, because I had some of those relationships. I think the fact that, um, you know, when I'm on these calls, which I am, you know, often and sometimes very regularly with distributors of our films, like once we've sold a film, you know, I think I know questions to ask and things to be aware of and to pay attention to because again, like I, I know not necessarily, I don't know exactly how in 2021 every aspect of releasing a movie because it's different than when I was doing it full time, but I understand, you know, a lot of it. And so I think that it helps my questions and the relationship with the distributor to be like more, maybe more practical, 
And I, and then the third thing is, I think that, you know, I'm not delusional. Like I, I, you know, I have a joke, which is like probably horrible, but when I was a distributor, like a joke to myself, which was, you know, that if I was, if I had like a rock band, I was going to name it like delusional directors or delusional, you know, producers, because, you know, how many times had I been on the end of a director or producer saying things like, you know, we think, you know, we think this film is going to really work with like, you know, conservatives in the Midwest, or we think that, you know, this film is going to be as successful as like Napoleon Dynamite. And, you know, you'd have to kind of nod and, and, you know, or people just making demands that were just like not realistic. And um, if, if you ask any distributor, it, these are things that like drive them crazy, you know, and I'm very aware of that. And so I think that, you know, I, try not to, you know, I of course have ambitions like for the films I work on, but you know, they're usually based in reality or what I think is reasonable and also like respectful. I, I, I also tend to be very like, you know, very appreciative of the distributors because I know what it, you know, I know what it means. And I also, the last thing is that it, you know, I have a very pretty deep understanding of just like the whole life of a film, you know? So from, you know, understanding that a film doesn't end when it's sold or even when it's first distributed, but that there's, you know, there's other sort of, whether it's like there are other distribution windows, there are other avenues, but sort of really caring about a film like from the very beginning through this indefinite, like these films will, you know, they'll outlive me. And, you know, I mean, I hope, you know, to like, I hope they exist. And, um, and I think that's, I think that's helpful. So I do find it very, I do find it really helpful. Yeah, I think I wish more people had worked, or I wish people that are going to just work at distribution go work on a film set first. I wish everybody could dabble a bit to see what the other side is is thinking. I think it's um, yeah, your career has been so fascinating, and um, partly because of the mix of what you've done. So after those first two fiction features, did you sort of consciously move into nonfiction and documentary, or? Did that sort of land on your lap or what happened to the, I think of you now more documentary. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think like a lot of things, I think as the older you get, you realize that there's not a lot of grand design always, um, right, in our careers or our lives. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, I was continuing to work, I was producing, but the whole time I was producing, I had a job. I was consulting part-time in mostly for one distribution company and production company. So I was really lucky. Well, I wasn't just lucky. It was the only way I could do it because independent producing is, um, you know, extremely difficult life career choice financially. It's extremely yeah, It's usually for the independently wealthy. Yes. And that's the, that's the sort of like dirty, you know, secret, at least in the U.S. I, I can't speak to other countries, but the dirty secret in the U.S. is that, you know, a good number, I would say, of independent producers and directors, um, you know, have family money or they have a partner who is like quite successful in supporting them. Not all, but, you know, a, a large number of them, I would say. And that was not my situation. So, you know, I always had to work. I always had to have it. I could never just sort of devote 100% of my time to sort of trying to get films off the ground. Um, and you know, I was in this moment, I think, where I was, you know, trying to get another, like, at least one or two films made. And, you know, the other thing about independent producing is it's it's speculative work. Like, you're not getting paid unless the film, you know, actually gets made, then you're waiting for the financing to come in. So, you know, I was trying to get, I think, a couple of other films made with, you know, filmmakers I was working with at the time. And I had this, you know, this 
this consulting job that was in production and distribution. And, um, but I was also at, I think just at a point in my life where I was, you know, feeling a little bit tired of like the, just a little bit of the sort of, you know, the financial insecurity and, um, and just a little bit at a crossroads, I think and not really sure what to do about it. And, you know, I, I, I'm very, I, I'm very change averse. Um, like I just, I get nervous about change. So like in terms of initiating it myself. So, okay. Cause that's what, cause I think of you as somebody who's always been adapting and moving and, but it's, but it's largely, I think coincidental and, and of course I accept it, but you know, I'm not someone who's like seeking out things a lot. So very coincidentally, um, somebody that I think you probably know, at least from Facebook, uh, Victoria Cook, who is, uh, Victoria is an attorney at um, FKKS, which is a firm in the US. And um, she works with a lot of, uh, I mean, initially I think she worked with a ton of documentary filmmakers and producers and companies. And now she works also with a lot of, you know, fiction, fiction creators. But um, she randomly called me and she was someone I didn't know very well. She was sort of a work colleague and I was friends with her on Facebook. Um, and she randomly called me and said, you know, I, I don't know if you're interested in, in documentary and nonfiction, but I have a client who wants to start a documentary company, like a documentary production company. You know, maybe this sounds crazy. Uh, and, you know, I guess I was very, I was very interested because I immediately said, yes, I'm interested in it. I realized, you know, kind of afterwards that I'd always loved documentary. And when I was at Wellspring, you know, I think we were one of the few companies that were not documentary distributors that actually distributed documentaries. We distributed at least like three or four, maybe more in theaters. We had a bunch, um, you know, in our library, but they were, at the time they were really hard. Mm. I mean, documentaries like, you know, they so were- So niche back then and now it's crazy. impossible yeah. to sell. They were impossible to book in theaters. You know, they, at back then they had very little even like library value, meaning, you know, you'd sort of have your first like year out the gate, but unlike some of our fiction films, nobody wanted them in three or four years. So I always wanted to work on more, but you know, it just was at the time that I was working in distribution, there weren't a lot of, you know, it was just a really hard business. Um, so I, you know, it was a kind of crazy offer because it was also, you know, it was the, the, the person who, who, you know, wanted to do this was like a big um, Hollywood, director and producer and not someone that I saw myself as like someone who, you know, my taste would align with and was also like, uh, you know, what this person, like really that person wants to, you know, work in documentaries, but it turned out that the interest was actually really genuine. And, um, and it was kind of like a leap of faith when I did it and I took it, but I really quickly, uh, and again, I had to learn all over again. I mean, not from scratch, but like, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't know about working on documentaries and people that I needed to meet and stuff. But, um, but pretty quickly, I realized, and I'm sure you've had this experience, Wendy, like, as a rule, I would say, filmmaker for filmmaker, documentary filmmakers are some of the smartest, nicest, most decent, most sort of ethical, um, you know, people that you could ever work with. And yeah, that, and you see, I mean, this is gonna sound, uh, painting the whole tribe um, with one brush, uh, a little less ego sometimes than yeah. with a fiction filmmaker who has to tell their story and get it made. The documentarian is usually, not always, wanting to tell some other story and they've got to tell somebody else's story. 
So you, it's a different vibe. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there obviously there are, you know, there are egos everywhere, but I think because for that exact reason, because usually not always people that are making documentaries are coming from, you know, whether it's like a political passion, social, pa you know, they're, they're, they're not necessarily coming from like, like you said, it's not all about them. Yeah, and so this was Rat Pack. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of work, you know, the highlights of the work that you did on the documentary side there? What were some of your favorite projects? Um, so I'm just thinking, it's so funny. It's like, it's not even that long ago, but you know how, I don't know, especially with this year, um, it sort of like made time, like things seem like 20 years ago. Uh, so, you know, I was really lucky because one of the first films that I worked on was like the first project that I brought in was a documentary called Night Will Fall. Um, and what I loved about that was that it, it, it allowed me to meet some really great people, uh, particularly international uh, people, which, you know, was something I had missed. I kind of hadn't realized how much I missed it, but I had missed that from working in, you know, foreign film distribution. And so that was, film was a production, it was a co-production of, I think like eight or nine countries. Um, the amazing Philippa Kowarski, who I'm sure you probably know. Oh, Seta Phil, she's great. Yeah. Well, she was the person who sort of had, was like putting it together and she, you know, I, I got to know her and, and she became someone I just love and admire and, and people like, um, you know, Barbara Beeman from Germany. There was just a really amazing group of people. And it was, uh, we were really lucky because I, that was a film that, you know, I actually did sell myself. That's an example. Like I sold it to HBO because we, we, in addition to, you know, getting involved with it, investing in it, we, um, we took the, the U.S. rights because. Okay, to resell, yeah. Yeah, I just felt that we would probably be in a better position to sell to the U.S. And, you know, so we sold it to HBO and it was, you know, it was very successful on HBO. And I think at the time, you know, the, the executives at HBO told me that it was like, if not the number one, but it was one of the absolute top films in terms of like viewership. And, you know, it was a very meaningful film. It was also the first Holocaust related film I had ever worked on. I learned a lot from that. And um, it was extremely memorable to me, just the experience of even showing the film in, in Berlin, um, which was incredible. So that's very, that is a very special place in my heart. Um, yeah, I actually rewatched it a few weeks ago. They re-showed it on Channel 4. Oh, and really? I like saw it was coming on and I couldn't flip through it. It's just such a powerful piece of work. Directed yeah. by Andre Singer, we should mention. But yeah, yeah. an amazing film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I am just thinking of some other highlights. I mean, a bit, you know, a, a, a big favorite for me is a film called Author, the JT Leroy story uh, by Jeff Wareseg. Um, which was, you know, an interesting one because at that job, you know, I, um, you know, I, I was definitely like very supported and, uh, you know, Brett was very enthusiastic about documentaries and I was, you know, I was, I was really able to, to do a lot of projects that I was passionate about, but that one was one that, you know, Brett supported, but I think he, he, he was maybe, he was maybe a little bit sort of like, not skeptical, but, you know, I, I, it, there wasn't maybe the same degree of like complete sort of passion from the first second. So I actually always felt a lot more uh, like I felt, I just felt more like, oh, this has to be good or this better work or there's better because I, I knew that it was much more like my thing and I was sort of like going out on a limb and, um, but you know, I, and I learned a lot from working on that film. I love 
I Love Jeff. It was also a film that ended up being a little bit controversial. So I had, you know, a taste of that, which is like something, thank God, I had a little bit of experience with in my <laughs> days, um, which is never fun, but, you know, it's, I kind of like the challenge. And, um, you know, it ended at the time, it was like, you know, it was Amazon's first uh, documentary purchase at Sundance. It was, you know, a big sale. Now, like, documentary numbers have gone through the roof, but it was sort of a big, like, financially a big sale at the time. And I just love the film. Um, it was a film that, you know, just kind of, because one of the things I do miss about working in fiction is that, you know, and especially the kind of films I liked working on, they were very artistic for the most part, you know. And of course, there's some documentaries that are more creative than others, but I think generally speaking, and this is changing, um, you know, there's maybe a little bit less room for sort of like a real kind of director's vision or, you know, real experimentation and creativity. And the thing about author is that Jeff Wurzeg is like a real visionary and is like a, a filmmaker's filmmaker. And um, so that was really fun. And I think it was sort of satisfied the part of me that missed a little bit of that kind of, you know, that more sort of like art artistic, like visionary filmmaking. Another amazing filmmaker you've worked with is Alison Clayman. Um, I love her films. You worked um, with her on a film called The Brink, which I got to talk to you guys about um, at Sundance London. Um, now it's confession time, because you have to tell us how you know Steve Bannon and how this film came about. Sure, yeah, so I left that out a little bit in the distribution days when I said that the company was shut down. Um, it was at the time that the company was shut down, uh, the owner, although I always have to add the caveat that it was not his money, for some reason I find it very important. Uh, the owner, kind of head of the company was Steve Bannon. So he had bought uh, the company that I was working for about two years before it closed. It, that was back when he was an aspiring, you know, film media mogul of type. And I think he had bought in a few other, well, I know he had bought a few other production company, like a short film company, and he was sort of hoping to put together uh, a mini major um, and I think like epically failed at that, but um, all because of himself really. Uh, but uh, so anyway, yeah, so I knew him many years ago and back then, you know, he was, he was someone I actually had a very positive relationship with, even though he was, you know, he could be a huge asshole. I'm sorry if I'm not supposed to say that in this, but you know, he had a really bad temper, he was erratic, he was not a great boss in many ways, he was actually like horrendous. But, um, you know, the flip side of it was that he really believed in me, he really believed in our films, he supported, you know, at the time Ryan Werner was working with me, uh, supported us completely. Um, and so, you know, I had, a, I had a positive relationship with him. I stayed in touch with him for some years after the company closed, but then, you know, he sort of went further and further into politics as like his major preoccupation and increasingly right-wing politics. When I first knew him, he was a Republican, but, you know, he was what I would consider and he would probably have considered sort of a, you know, like a, a McCain Republican or like okay. a right Republican. He wasn't, he wasn't far right. Not a terrifying Republican. No, no. And as, but as he moved sort of the right and, and also became just more, uh, you know, obsessed or obsessed. I mean, he made he made politics his his business basically. You know, I 
you know, there was a natural, let's just say like drifting apart, or I certainly started to feel increasingly uncomfortable with what he was doing. And, you know, I, I just lost touch with him. And, um, and then when he, I'm trying to make this, I'm trying to speed this up, but when, cause I've spoken about this a lot. So when he um, then, you know, joined the Trump campaign, I was very upset and I had his contact information and I just fired off a couple of like very nasty, but heartfelt, um, email and you know just saying like you could you know it was sort of so naive too because it was like you could still leave you know like think of your children i can get you out yeah you can't do this in any case um and i had no idea if he would reply but he actually replied and then that sort of led to me kind of having this outlet so whenever something was like which was happening every day like some horrific thing that was happening Trump related or Biden related, I would fire off these like nasty texts or emails. And, you know, I would say a lot of the time he would reply, he was always polite. Um, and, you know, then he was in the White House and, you know, over time I, I was starting to become infuriated with how the media was depicting him as, you know, there were, I just felt that the media was giving him so much power. Like if you remember, there was a period of time where he was everywhere, you know, you couldn't, you could not escape him. And yeah, it was with our friend, Nigel Farage. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it was just this image of him as like, he's this genius, like the mastermind of the far right, you know, Darth Vader, like they were all, they were negative, but they were very powerful um, images. And the truth was that I was sort of like, this guy's, you know, he's smart, but he's not a genius. Like he's actually a fraud, you know? And, and but, but anyway, over time I started to think, um, you know, I, I have this access to him. It's really bizarre. You know, I, I'm not doing anything with it except sort of like venting my own anger, which is not very constructive. It might feel good in a second, but you know, what if, because I know that he, you know, he basically trusts me because we had this good relationship years ago, because I know he has a very, very large ego and might be very flattered by the idea of somebody wanting to make a documentary about him, especially because he was always a big like sort of arts lover, which is seeming like a seem, it's sort of contradiction, but he really was and a snob actually, like kind of a film snob. Um, I, just, I just asked him one day out of the blue when he was still at the White House, if I could make a documentary about him. I didn't tell anybody at all that I was even thinking about this or doing this. I was still at Rat Pack. Uh, I didn't tell anyone there. And he said, no, you know, of course his, his response was like, no, you'll destroy me because he knew obviously very clearly what I thought about him. And then, but I just would ask like every couple of weeks and maybe the sort of fourth time to my surprise, he said, yes. Uh, and then I was sort of like, oh, now, you know, now what do I do? Um, and, uh, and, you know, very, just to get to Allison, you know, I think very quickly after he said yes, you know, cause he sort of started asking me like, well, you know, is there a director or what? And, you know, I knew at the time, and I pr was proven right, because then later Al Morris ended up making a film about him. I knew that, you know, with him agreeing to give me this access, because I, you know, my whole thing was like, it's not an interview. You know, I want someone to be able to embed with you and really follow you through a period of time. And so once he said yes, I, I sort of realized, like, I could probably get a lot of, you know, very prominent, highly regarded filmmakers, you know, who would want, who would want this access and who would do this. Um, and I thought about a number of filmmakers and, you know, at different sort of like career levels and different, but Allison just, you know, kept on coming into my mind. I had worked with her on a short film, uh, you know, a couple of years before, not, not even that closely, but just enough to really 
get a sense of her personality, how smart she was. I knew how talented she was from seeing her films. And I just had an instinct that, you know, not only would she be, would she be the best filmmaker, but that she, and the person I would most like to work with, but also that, you know, if anyone would have a real shot at getting him to like let his guard down and really sort of make something that was truly revealing that she kind of had the like savvy and the sort of social emotional intelligence to do that. And also the bravery because it was very intense and um, really unpleasant a lot of the time for her. And, um, and you know, I asked her and she, 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 you know, she wanted to think about it for a little bit, but she thought about it and she said, yes. And, um, and that led to a very epic adventure. Um, that I just, I hope everybody watching this has either seen the film. It's just a remarkable piece of filmmaking and the way she's, she's structured she's, it and she really gets under the skin of this guy. And I'm really glad you were persistent and kept emailing him to get this access because I think it's a remarkable portrait of the Trump era. Yeah, I mean, what I felt about the film and I would say to Allison is like, look, because, you know, at the time that we were making it, there was a big discussion, which still exists, but it was the height of this discussion about no platforming, if you remember. And it was, you know, and so we weren't sure, you know, what kind of pushback we would get. Would we be criticized? Would we be criticized by, you know, people on the left, by even our community, filmmaking community for making this film? And, you know, what I, what I kept saying to her is like, look, no matter what, this is a document. This will be a document for history. And, you know, this is gonna be important because this is probably, and I think it is, and it always will be the most sort of inside that, you know, anyone has been able to get into the sort of inner sanctum of like the Trump world and the mindset of the people that are behind, not just Trump, but, you know, the the turn in, into in, of the Republican party that, that we're seeing. And so even if like we're, you know, even if people hate us now, this is, you know, this is valuable. And we, we have, I almost felt like, a, like, a, like an obligation um, to do it. And she was really brave and she's really talented. Yeah. I could do an infomercial for Alison Clayman. Yes. Um, she's, yeah, just such a great filmmaker. And I think she was perfect match that you brought in. Um, so thankfully now your boss um, is a, think a decent human being, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. who is Jeffrey Lurie. Um, he is the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, but he also started this company called Play Action. And you joined forces with him to, I guess, run the documentary side of that. So can you tell us the kinds of films you're making and why that was a good fit when sure. that opportunity came up? Sure, yeah. So, so, uh, so the company is actually only documentaries. Um, okay. He, uh, someone, uh, a, an industry colleague, Dan Kogan, who you probably know, had um, approached me and 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 said that you know this 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 person, Jeffrey Lurie, was interested in starting a documentary company, production company, financing company, and would I be interested in? Um, and you know, at the time, I was working on the brink. I was producing it independently. I was working on that, and I had some other consulting work. And I was it was sort of a rare moment, very rare in the film career. Uh, where, you know, I, I sort of didn't, I could have had, I could have had a year without a full-time job, let's put it that way. You know, like I was, I was okay enough with this, you know, producing work and this, this consulting work. Um, and I was, to be honest, I was a little bit, I was very nervous about another full-time job because I, my, the, the job before had ended in, you know, in a, in a very upsetting manner. And I was kind of recovering from that and, um, you know, just sort of hesitant 
and I think also the idea of like, oh, it's another kind of powerful man, you know, and uh, I don't, you know, yes, like I probably have a PhD in, in, in kind of dealing with those men, but I don't want to anymore. Um, so I was, I was definitely very skeptical, I will say, honestly, not skeptical, I was hesitant. But I think because it was Dan Kogan, who I trust and respect, and I knew Dan knew this person a little bit, and I also just felt like I'm not going to say to Dan Kogan, you know, he's so nice to to recommend me to somebody. Like, no, I won't, I won't meet with him. But um, I met with Jeffrey, and uh, you know, I think Jeffrey sort of like in five minutes defied any any really like probably ignorant on my part, but stereotypical notion of what someone who owns an NFL team would be like. Uh. He was like that successful and seemingly that kind of like powerful. He's you know. It was just very clear very quickly that, and it's been true this whole time, he's incredibly respectful, gracious, intelligent, um, you know, and decent. And um, I felt very comfortable with him and then also with what he wanted to do. And he was very, he was specific in that, uh, you know, he wanted to make documentaries that are, uh, you know, that engage with like sort of important or, or really pressing, you know, issues, subjects, conflicts of the moment that we're living in. And that was a very broad mandate uh, beyond that, you know, which I also appreciated that it wasn't so hyper-specific because sometimes these, you know, people that want to want to do this have like much more specific uh, ambitions, you know? Yeah, and there's no room to like bring your own voice into that if somebody's- Exactly. exactly. I remember even saying to him when he talked, you know, because I think he framed it initially as sort of social issues. And I said, well, you know, if you're talking about social issues in a very kind of, you know, in, 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 I, I mentioned a few documentaries that are more sort of on the nose, really maybe more informative. And, and you know, I said like, I, number one, I, I wouldn't be very good probably at helping to make those documentaries because I don't know how to do it. It's a very specific talent. And number two, that's not really where my personal interest lies. But if you actually think of social issues in a much broader way, you know, first of all, like probably then, 80 to 90% of documentaries are about social issues. But, you know, I think you can, it, you, there's a more interesting approach and he was completely on board. So I think Summer of Soul is a perfect example of a film that, you know, on the surface is a music documentary, right? About this concert and it's full of performances, but it's very much more than that. And, there, and it works on several levels and the levels, you know, all the levels pertain to, you know, issues of racism and, and you know, the history of like black, art and culture in this country. So, you know, I think that's an example of something that might not be on the most surface, like a social issues documentary, but certainly, you know, definitely engages with, I think really important issues and, you know, um, crucial issues. So, uh, sorry, I'm rambling now. No, um, this is perfect. But I'm wondering, um, MLK FBI, was that through play action or is that something you've done? That's play action. That's yes. play action. So play action, just to be clear, I started, with play action, I basically kind of started this company with Jeffrey um, about two and a half years ago. And so we have uh, four documentaries right now that are finished. Um, Cause as you know, it takes a long time to make these things. And then we have um, two documentaries that we're right now sort of in either development or production on, and, and there's a couple of more coming. So I think we'll probably, the aim is to have, you know, three to four finished documentaries a year, which usually means like you're working on four to five documentaries at a time. And so MLK was one of the, that first group was um, Summer of Soul. 
uh, MLK FBI, The Meaning of Hitler, which um, will be coming out this summer, and uh, Totally Under Control. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, you say that slow, but that to me is like lightning fast in the documentary world to have only really formed the company in 2018 and to already have, you know, a body of work is really pretty good. Um, so, you know, do you ever think you're going to produce fiction again? Are you totally into nonfiction or is it never say never? Oh, I would love to, you know, yeah. I think, I think in a perfect world, I would like to be able to do both. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that's something that could possibly happen at play action. Uh, you know, Jeffrey in his, before he bought the Philadelphia Eagles was a producer, actually like a producer in Hollywood. And, you know, he, he's very passionate about movies and it's, it's not part of the mandate, you know, at the outset, but I know that, you know, I know that it's, I know that it's something that I think if the right thing came along, um, it's something that he might be open to and that we could maybe do or just down the road, but, you know, it would be great. It's just hard, you know, but it would be great to be able to, to do both because I think now that I've worked on documentaries, I realize that it engages. I mean, I'm extremely interested in politics and kind of current events and, you know, I am very, I'm very engaged and stimulated by the documentaries and that, you know, that I think really appeals to and engages with like that part of me, which is a big part of my life. Um, you know, but I do miss, in the, as I said before, I miss the fiction filmmaking just in that there's just more, um, first of all, there's more freedom in certain ways, you know, I think there's more creative freedom, there's more, uh, it's, there's a lot, you know, it's just, it's a different, it's a different mindset. Um, and I also honestly, I miss people like I miss, you know, now when I go to film festivals, I pretty much only see documentaries because I have to. I miss seeing the fiction films. I miss the people, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, there's overlap in the world, in the both worlds, especially in the last years, but yeah. you know, there's still, um, there's still now some people that I used to work with, especially like internationally that I don't really have reason to anymore or even to see and yeah. miss that too. So I miss like the world of fiction filmmaking as much as like the actual. So yeah, hopefully, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. I hope so. I'd be curious to see what that looks like. Um, and I wanted to ask, we mentioned it a little bit at the start about, you know, you do really understand the business and sales and distribution and, and all that. But I'm wondering how you see yourself as a creative producer as well. Um, you know, how creatively involved do you get? Um, I, I know that will depend project by project and director by director, but you know, are you someone, you know, are you giving Questlove notes saying, I really hate this scene. Um, you got to move that to 10 minutes earlier. I mean, how deep do you go? Right. Well, it definitely depends project by project. Um, I think, you know, certainly when I'm, you know, a producer, the producer, uh, one of, you know, two producers, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty involved creatively. I think it's, I think it's actually something I bring to the films uh, that I've learned to be good at. It's, you know, I've realized over time, just even, you know, giving notes is a, is an art form. Um, and I've learned how to do it, I think, and I think I'm good at it. And I think, you know, I think what I'm probably best at, if there's anything top line, it's probably, you know, kind of helping a filmmaker make the film that they want to make. So not, not necessarily what I'm imposing upon them, but, you know, 
understanding what understanding their vision and helping them bring Mm -hmm. that to light and the best yeah Yeah. sometimes that does require more kind of creative involvement um in my experience honestly the best filmmakers the best ones you know including like very well-known ones actually take notes um you know they're selective and i always tell this to filmmakers actually is like you know sure you don't you don't have to take notes from 10 people or 20 people i mean you could gather them but you know i think every filmmaker should have like two or three people who are not, you know, their partner or unless their partner, you know, but, but you know what I mean? Like not their mother or their, but their best friend, but you know, people who they really respect and who they, they also know um, and trust will sort of get them, you know? So they're again, so they're not, cause I think the problem with note giving and why a lot of directors get frustrated by them is because I think, uh, you know, one of the ways in which I think people give bad notes is that there are many ways, um, but one of the ways is that they're they're not working with what's either what's there, what's or what's possible, or with what you know with with a real understanding of the film that the filmmaker wants to make. So yeah. you know, then the notes are just they just read as either obnoxious or stupid or you know. So, um, but I do think that you know every filmmaker should have those few people, and they should really take those notes seriously. And it doesn't mean they should take the notes, but they should take them seriously. And I. You know, I will say that, you know, all of the filmmakers that I consider to be like the best ones that I've worked with take notes um, and they don't. And sometimes, you know, it's funny because the ego comes in. So every now and then it's like, I'll see, you know, they won't like they won't in the moment say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. But then it's like I see the next cut and it's there and it's like we don't talk about it. But, you know, but that's fine. I don't I don't need to have to be have that necessarily always acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of creative producing, I think it's really important. I think that uh, there's actually a dearth of creative producing, like yeah. in this country anyway. I can't speak for for other countries, but I think um, you know there's now. I think there are a lot of people that that are in even in school on this sort of producer track, and I think there's a lot of focus on you know, which are important things like raising money and marketing and you know physical production. But the actual, you know, I think the best producers really are the ones who can speak to filmmakers in their language, who actually have something to offer that is, you know, that is creative and not just, I mean, it is important to be good at raising money and it's important, very important. But I think that, um, so, you know, it depends. So on some films where, you know, maybe there's, so for example, in this, in this role now, right, you know, I'm not hands-on producing any of these films. I mean, the brink I was, because that was, you know, but, but in this job, for example, I mean, I can't, I'm an executive at the company. I can't, you know, I can't do it. But, you know, let's say of, you know, of the, of the four films, like they're, you know, they're so far, like there's one that I was like extremely involved with creatively and especially in the editing process and, you know, deeply, deeply involved. Mm-hmm. Then there's one that I was, you know, moderately involved in. Then there was, you know, I think something like totally under control where I certainly gave notes, but you know, there were a lot of people involved with that production. It was, it had to happen extremely quickly because of the subject matter. It was about COVID and had to come out before the election. So I didn't even feel that they needed me as much, you know? I mean, I think I, I, my voice was there and they were respectful, but you know, it, it wasn't, the necessity wasn't there as much. And that's the other thing that's important, I think as a producer, and especially I think as an executive who's producing is to know when you're needed and when you're not, because, you know, it's, I, I don't feel like I should just, just to prove my worth, you know, um, I need to be sort of like all over 
filmmakers all the time, or I need to, do you know what I mean? It's like, I really prefer to use my, to, to sort of, to use whatever my knowledge and talent is like when it's needed. Yeah, be there when you're needed, but don't interfere. If things are going fine, you know. Exactly, you know, and I think that, especially when on something like The Brink, for example, when if you're a producer who let's say has initiated a project, so it's like, it's your idea, which The Brink was, and you would bring in a filmmaker, I think it's really important to make sure that that filmmaker feels and has freedom and has control because, you know, you might feel very strongly about something because it was an idea you had or a relationship, but you know, you have to, in that case, I think even, even more so allow the person to really, you know, feel totally independent um, for a number of reasons. I mean, it's ethical, but it's also, I think the you get the better result um, because that's why presumably you've, you've, you've gone to that filmmaker in the first place. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, I'm going to wrap up with two questions. I'm trying to ask every producer that I do this with. Okay. Do you have any pet peeves of things people do on set or during a shoot? You know, honestly, I haven't been on that many. I mean, I know it sounds funny, yeah. but I mean, of course I've been on sets and I've been on shoots. Um, I don't know if I have a pet peeve. I think that, I think that um, this is maybe not answering the question exactly on the nose, but I think that, you know, the atmosphere is so important. Like, I, I think that, you know, what something I think a lot of, especially kind of early filmmakers starting out don't realize is that, you know, the, the director sets the tone. Um, you know, the director absolutely sets the tone and sure, especially on bigger movies, there's lots of people running around, but director really has an obligation to set the tone. The director might not have an obligation to be, in, to be responsible for every single, you know, thing that's happening, but in terms of the tone and the atmosphere of how people are treated, you know, of how time is spent about like, that is the director's responsibility. So I would say that, you know, it's not a pet peeve, but I think that, you know, I think that that directors sort of, sort of ideally would, will be aware of the fact yeah. that- And they can understand the impact they have on everybody's mood and their working style. And yeah, yeah. they can't control every little thing, but yeah, I think that's a good, yeah, it's not a pet peeve, it's a good tip. Yeah. Um, my final question, and God, we could spend an hour on this one, but what do you think people either in this industry or outside this industry misunderstand about what a producer does? Yeah, that's, um, you know, I think, well, I think that that people outside the industry actually don't really know what a producer does. So that, but that's, you know, that's a whole other thing. Um, in this industry, I think that, you know, I think that because there are people who, you know, either have the title producer who, you know, because that, that, that title has become a little bit looser. Certainly executive producers become looser. I think that, um, you know, there is either the idea that, a, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm thinking as I'm answering. I think that maybe the biggest misunderstanding, and sometimes it's based on truth, is that, you know, the producer is only about money and only about, you know, business. And I think that, um, you know, I can see, for example, let's say at Sundance every year, because Sundance is a good example in this country anyway, where you see first time films, you know, and films by younger filmmakers. And I can tell when a film, I think when there's a bit of a failure of producing and it's, and, and that's because I can tell that there's a director that has talent 
but who hasn't really been mentored, reined in. They haven't been, you know, there hasn't been someone really collaborating with them closely enough, maybe that, or, or somebody maybe tried and the director didn't take it, but you know, there, there are a lot of those films you see at Sundance and at other festivals, you know, I'm just speaking of Sundance because it's in the United States where there's like a lot of potential, but there's like, it's like a misfire, you know? And I, I do think that the producer has a significant responsibility there. And that very often when there's that misfire, I do think about a producer. And I think that, so I think that this misunderstanding has almost seeped into what the actual job has become. So I think because uh, there has been so much emphasis on money and producers raise money and you know producers are all about the business and there's less of a discussion and emphasis on creative producing that a lot of sort of emerging producers or you know a little bit younger producers don't focus on creative producing themselves or the other thing I see is that you know producers who are just so kind of that they think their job is solely really just to do whatever a director wants and I don't really view that as my job, honestly. I, I mean, I think my job is obviously like to facilitate their work, but if I disagree with something or with, you know, I say it. And if I, I think that's actually my job. I think that, you know, I'm bringing that to them and they're lucky to be getting it. They don't always have to take it. But I think a lot of the time you'll, I think that there's this, you know, there, there are producers, especially again, like maybe a little bit less experienced or producers coming out of film schools who really think their job is really just to sort of like, facilitate anything that the director wants, kind of not, you know, to is separate from the kind of creative process. And, um, and so in a way, it's like the misconception about what producers do has almost seeped into, I think, a little bit of like what producing has become. Mm. And I think that's both a shame and also kind of dangerous in a way, because, you know, as I said before, like, there's no great director and I've worked with especially you know when I was in distribution I've worked with some of the best directors in the world you know and there is no genius director who doesn't need collaborators like who doesn't need somebody to sometimes tell them no or to offer an alternative you know or to really get in the weeds creatively with them yeah because they can go off the rails too it's like actors like they're genius actors that will be bad at a movie and it's usually because the director just like let them do whatever they wanted so yeah. I think that that misconception, I know that's, this is maybe a sort of a little bit of like a convoluted answer, but I think that is the misconception, but I think it's also becoming a little bit of the reality. And that's why I think it's important and great to be talking about it. And, you know, hopefully for you to continue to talk about it with other people, because creative producing is really, really important. And I think it's like very um, misunderstood and sort of increasingly like not even a reality. Yeah. No, I love, um, I'm sure you know her or might be friends, Manette Louie um, will quite often say, you know, there are producers and then there are producers in quotes who are just not on the same page or the same level or trying to be. And um, I think you're definitely one of those without the quotes. So but it's hard. I mean, it can be a harder road because there are some filmmakers that don't want to hear it or because, you know, it's definitely... But I think it's also more gratifying too, yeah. it can be, um, you know, but yeah, most people don't know what producers do. I mean, I'm, I get asked that all the time. Yes. Well, Maritrez, we could talk for another 12 hours, but I'm going to let you go um, and actually get back to producing and exec producing four more films. Um, but thank you so much. That was really fascinating to hear more about your career path and how yeah. you think about producing. And thank you for, 
bringing it out of the shadows, what you actually do. And we look forward to your next adventures. Thank you. And I look forward to watching these other interviews. Thanks for listening to this Adventures in Producing podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. This series of talks is also available on video at youtube.com. And you can find those links at my website, filmwendy.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to bensound.com for the music. Hope you join us again soon.